Hello, welcome to the Volts podcast, uh, a podcast that is so new it does not even have a name yet or a schedule uh, or anything else. This is the first episode and who knows if there will even be a second, but welcome to the first and maybe only uh, episode of the Volts podcast. I have with me today, I'm very excited to have uh, Dr. Leah Stokes an assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, a clean energy expert, and uh, the author of a recent book called Short-Circuiting Policy, Interest Groups and the Battle over Clean Energy and Climate Policy in the American States. Uh, Welcome, Leah. Thank you for coming. Oh, thanks so much for having me as your inaugural guest on your fancy podcast. Amazing. (laughs) And then I also have uh, Sam Ricketts who is, uh, was an Inslee guy for many years and then uh, co-founded uh, Evergreen Action, which is sort of carrying on the work of the Inslee plan and is also a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Hello, Sam. Hello. Pleased to be here with you both. Ah, very exciting. So today uh, we are going to focus on a particular piece of climate policy, specifically a national clean energy standard, which would, um, depending on how you structure it, decarbonize the U.S. electrical grid by 2035. It is a central piece of the Biden climate plan, and we're going to talk a little bit about why it's so important, why it's so central, and how Biden might be able to actually get it done, given current political circumstances. So, uh, but first, just by way of background, let's start uh, maybe with you, Leah. Let's just talk about why is clean electricity so important? Why is it so central to not only Biden's plan, it was central to almost all of the dozens of plans that were flying around this past couple of years. Why why is electricity uh, so important? Yeah, so... The way that we've made most progress so far when it comes to tackling the climate crisis and cutting U.S. emissions is through the electricity sector. Uh, We've managed to clean up that sector a fair amount by doing things like retiring coal plants. And we can continue to drive down emissions from that sector, which is now the second biggest sector just behind transportation in terms of emissions. So itself, it's really important to clean up how we make electricity. But the really big leverage point comes when we realize that electricity can be used to power huge swaths of our economy. So we can use clean electricity for transportation through things like electric vehicles. We can use it to power our homes through things like induction stoves and electric heat pumps. We can even use it to power parts of heavy industry. And when you add up all these different slices of our economy, when we power these sectors with clean energy, we actually can get to emissions cuts of up to 70 to 80%. So clean electricity is in many ways a huge, huge part of decarbonization. And Sam, tell us what you know about sort of the potential additions to uh, the electricity demand that might come from all this electrifying of other sectors. I know you guys had some numbers on that in the Inslee plan. What are we, are, are, are we looking at needing 
more electricity, 1.5 times as much, twice as much? What's the sort of scale of additional electricity demand that will come with widespread electrification? Yeah, I mean, the, the, Leah's point is, is, is crucial. The, the, the first things first is we, get, we need to deploy clean electricity to, to move the fossil electricity out off the system, but then we need just a whole lot more. So no, we actually, we need to be moving at a faster clip right now than we've, than we've ever moved. This, this, um, we need to be at least doubling uh, the clip of, of clean electricity going forward. And we're, we're going to need to be aiming for you know, 100 gigawatts a year going forward, um, uh, which is a considerable increase um, uh, in, uh, in, in, in even the highest level of past deployment we've ever reached uh, in, in the comes to deploying clean energy. Um, but you know, along with that, along with that challenge comes just enormous economic opportunity, right? This is this is about inducing investment. This is about capital investment, both public and private uh, projections. Uh, you know, a number of folks have modeled out how to get to 100 percent electricity. But even just over the course of the next decade of getting on that trajectory towards 100 percent by 2035, you're you're going to be inducing five to six hundred billion dollars of investment again public and majority private um, from all payers into it, clean electricity generation and, and into transmission. That's going to be so crucial, which is, which is when you know what investment means. Investment means jobs. We're talking millions of jobs over the course of the next decade, building this clean electricity system. And one of the things uh, we've talked about a lot is the sort of general shift in democratic or I guess left-leaning climate opinion away from these sort of grand visions of comprehensive schemes that cover the entire economy, carbon pricing schemes that cover the entire economy, and a sort of move towards more sector-focused, sector-specific policy. I I did want to ask one historical question, Sam, before I move on. This is, if you'll indulge me. You probably remember back when the Waxman-Markey fight was happening in 2008, 2009, when it it had passed the House and it was limping into the Senate and just getting battered about the head and shoulders by everybody and rapidly falling apart. And one of the sort of last-minute bids back then to save the whole thing was to do a national clean energy standard instead. In fact, there were people advocating that that should have been the main focus before before the whole process even started. So I wonder, do you think, A, there was ever actually a real chance for a national clean electricity standard to pass back then? And, and if so, do you wonder now where we might be if we'd gone down that route? Just speculate a, bit, a little bit with us, Sam. <laughs> David, this week, has, this week has already been too long. We have, we have had too little to drink together here tonight to, to go down the path of what would we have done differently a decade ago? Uh, but since you asked, yeah, I mean that. I mean, look, that was that was up for debate, right? That was a, um, uh, as you recall, there was a there was an RPS as part of a combined EERS RES as part of the Waxman Markey bill in the House. Sort of concurrently, the Senate Energy Committee under Chairman Bingaman was moving a uh, a, a clean a clean energy bill that did have a like a fifteen percent RPS on it as well, and that was sort of the hallmark and. At the time, there were there were groups, you know, there there were voices saying, "Let's not move a climate bill. Let's move this more narrowly tailored clean energy bill." Um, uh, you know, at the time, I worked in the House, and we were mighty proud of what we were hoping of what we got of what we got out of the chamber, despite its warts. Um, uh, and uh, and we're hoping the Senate would follow suit. So 
you know, in retrospect, there's probably a, I could, again, I could tick off a number of things we might have done differently, which, which frankly includes, you know, exer- executing on more executive action more quickly back then. But, um, you know, but, uh, but that was then, and this is now, uh, and, and now uh, we have got uh, a new president who, who campaigned on and won on an ambitious platform that included, you know, of course, $2 trillion investment, directing 40% of those investments in disadvantaged communities, and crucially, decarbonizing the power sector with an ambitious but achievable target of, of 100% by carbon-free power by 2035, and to do so through this clean electricity standard. So, no rearview mirrors here. I'm full <laughs> speed ahead, my friend. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's inspiring. Uh, although I can't quite, <clears throat> can't quite disassemble my rearview mirror. It's still, it still hangs out there on the side. Uh, yeah, so, you and me both. <laughs> so, well, but I think David's point is well put, which is that, you know, there have been efforts to pass a clean electricity standard going back to the 1990s. I, I wrote about this a bunch in my book, and I looked at the waxman marking target that you were talking about, which was 20% by 2020, and 8% of it could have been met with efficiency, meaning that the target was 12%. And it's interesting to think, oh, wow, everybody thought that was such a weak target back then. And it was weak, but it actually would have forced progress had it been implemented, because we still have a lot of states that are behind that, that only get for example, in this, in the case of West Virginia, about 5% of their electricity from clean energy sources, let alone renewable energy sources, which was what that 12% target was. So I just feel like, you know, these delays on passing a clean electricity standard for many decades have really led to consequences, which is that we're not cleaning up our power sector fast enough. Totally. And David, can I just add one more thing about that historical yeah. frame? Because I think it's important about how where we've gotten, you, know, you, you, just, you just sort of alluded to uh, uh, 100% clean electricity and this, and this CES standard being central part of the agenda now, right? And a number of plans and this movement towards standards, investment, and justice that you that you've written about that 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 standards line in there that that, that central part comes from um, comes from lived experience, and that lived experience really hasn't been federal; it's been at the state level, where right. you've got you know ever, since the 1980s, states have been passing laws uh, requiring greater amounts of renewable or clean electricity deployment as part of utility portfolios. And, and, you know, but, and now 30 states have an RPS of some sort over these four decades, but now you know, 10 of them have passed a full 100% clean requirements in law. So, you know, seven more have made that a goal. I mean, one in three Americans now live in a state or a city that's now committed to 100% clean power. So it's, it's, a, it's a movement that's being driven. It's being driven. Um, now it's at the federal level. Now it's a a nationwide target, and it's indeed a nationwide goal, and let's go get it done. But it's um, it's been it's been happening. It's on. It it is happening in states across the country. Yeah, that's a worth worthwhile point. I think to to emphasize here is that the the whole sort of inspiration of the of the shift in democratic climate policy opinion, which I think was really represented by the Inslee plan, is is let's look at what's worked. Let's look at what's actually passing, and it's not. You know these these grandiose climate pricing schemes. It's it's sector by sector policy that's actually passing and working at the state level. So um, let's think then. If you Leah, if you were uh, God Empress uh, of America <laughs> tomorrow, and you didn't have to worry about meddlesome legislators and whatnot, what what would what would the the best designed clean energy standard look like? If we're trying to decarbonize the electric, U.S. electricity sta- uh, um, sector by 2035, 
you know, the target obviously is the main thing, but what are the sort of other pieces of it that are going to make it work well and maybe uh, address some of the problems that might come up or sort of what are the other bells and whistles you need on here? Yes. Well, I will say that I wouldn't want to be empress. I'd still want there to be a democracy, but I would hope that the Senate itself would take up these Will you ideas. at least abolish um, the Senate before we put, <laughs> while you're empress? While I'm empress, I'll have, to, I'll have to consider that. It may need some reforms. Um, so I don't know. For example, D.C. could get statehood. That might go. be nice. Anyway, uh, and if Puerto Rico wants it too, they could have it too. So yes, you know, the most important thing about a clean electricity standard in many ways is the target and the timetable, right? And so uh, what Sam did, along with Bracken Hendricks and others who were working on the Inslee campaign, is they put forward this 100% clean by 2035 target. And, you know, that has been transformative. Uh, Elizabeth Warren also adopted it. And of course, uh, Joe Biden adopted it too. And uh, Achieving 100% clean electricity by 2035 is doable. There has been uh, modeling from groups like Energy Innovation and the UC Berkeley Goldman School, as well as Grid Lab, which shows that you can get to 90% clean by 2035 and actually save people money. So that last part of the electricity system is going to be the hardest to do, of course, but people who think that we can't make massive progress towards this goal are pretty ignorant of the fact that right now there are lots of coal plants operating that are actually costing people money, not just in terms of negative externalities, but directly in terms of increased bills for their own electricity customers. And this is in places like, for example, Southern Company Territory. So, you know, 100% by 2035 is, I think, where we should be aiming. And Sam and I have been talking a lot, as well as other people on the Hill have been talking about on the road to 100% uh, by 2035, we should be hitting 80% by 2030. And 80% by 2030 is an important uh benchmark year because there are some utilities, I believe Excel, who already have that target to try to reduce their fossil fuel infrastructure to be 80% clean by 2030. So this is a doable thing. Um, Another issue that we should think about is trading, right? So oftentimes in a clean electricity standard, you get uh, a certificate. We might call them renewable energy certificates or zero emissions credits, something like that, ZEX or RECs. And, you know, one thing that we've talked a lot about is how big should the boundaries be for trading? Because we really do want to make sure that resources and uh, cleaning up the electricity system is happening throughout the uh, U.S not just in specific regions. And so one idea is to actually limit trading to within specific, let's say, FERC regions or regions that FERC could uh, further design if there isn't a really clear region. So things like ERCOT or CAISO, um, it, it, PJM, let me just, let me that just kind of pause thing. here for a little sort of a explanatory note. I think just in case people don't know what trading means, it's just if you're, if you, oh, yeah, if you're, if you're a utility that... <laughs> that reduces your emissions more than the target, you can then get a credit for that. And and, and a utility that's having trouble reducing their emissions can buy the credit from you for compliance purposes, basically. 
Exactly. And that's a pretty hallmark uh, component of clean electricity programs or the precursor renewable portfolio standards. And it's interesting because a lot of these policies were passed at the state level and signed by Republican governors throughout the late 90s and early 2000s. The most famous example of that is in Texas under George W. Bush, then governor, you know, signing this bill that started Texas's huge build out of wind energy. What, uh, can, and, can we, and can at least trading was part of that idea. Let me pause there briefly because yeah. I don't want to get off in a rabbit hole, but what was the politics then? What did, what enabled that? Was it just that renewable energy had not been kind of polarized along along party lines or is it just nobody thought it was big enough or significant enough to be scared of it? Or why were the politics so different back in the 1990s? that all these Republican governors could do this. So this is something I unpack a lot in my book because I did a lot of historical work. I went and got archives from Texas, for example, to understand what happened when that law was passed because Texas actually acted before California even. And part part of what happened was that there was electricity restructuring happening in the mid-1990s. And there was a network of advocates funded in large part by the Energy Foundation that operated throughout the country. And they were debating ideas about, you know, what kinds of ways should we try to build clean energy? And they were debating between a renewable portfolio standard, what we now call a clean electricity standard, or a system benefits charge, which is basically a little charge on a bill that you can use to raise revenue that you can then spend on building clean power or just voluntary green power purchasing, which I think is more similar to the um, community choice aggregation movement right now, where people are, you know, choosing to buy 100% clean voluntarily. And all these ideas still exist today, but the renewable portfolio standard, the clean electricity standard, it really became the idea. And in part, that happened when Public Citizen and uh, EDF, Environmental Defense Fund in Texas, managed to attach a renewable portfolio standard onto the electricity restructuring bill in the late 1990s. And they managed to do that because they played a kind of inside-outside game where EDF sat at the negotiating table and negotiated for specific provisions, and uh, Public Citizen ran a grassroots campaign where they would table at specific uh, legislators' districts to try to put pressure. And another key uh, element of of that was that there was a public opinion exercise that took place in Texas in the mid-90s where they got people to sort of say, what do you want to see more of? And The big finding that came out of that event was that clean energy renewables are really, really popular. And so groups did a really good job amplifying the fact that clean electricity was popular and people wanted more wind and solar built. So it's actually a lot of lessons from that history that we can apply today. Now, why did it get polarized? Well, according to my research, the fossil fuel industry and electric utilities started to understand that this uh, policy, which looked pretty small at the beginning, keep in mind these early targets were like 10%, 15%. They were small. They started to realize that we weren't going to stop there. <laughs> we were going to go for 100% clean. And that started to threaten their bottom line because there are, of course, companies that make money off of destroying our planet by continuing to extract fossil fuels. It's it's funny. I was in uh, Berlin once talking to uh, the the guy who originally passed their feed-in tariff uh, uh, oh, well, yes. way back in 2000, and I was like, I was like, this thing transformed not just Germany but the world 
how on earth did you get this passed? And he was just like, nobody, nobody paid attention. Nobody, <laughs> nobody exactly. noticed. Nobody thought enough about renewables to be worried or be scared or fight me particularly. It was a kind of a quiet, a quiet victory that ended up leveraging, leveraging up. So, um, Sam, uh, thus far, we've been sort of jumping back and forth between renewable and clean, clean and renewable. Obviously, these there is significance in the difference. So maybe you could tell us um, sort of what the difference is between a clean electricity standard and a renewable electricity standard. Why and why the one has evolved out of the other? Sort of what's the benefit of the latter uh, versus the former, and and maybe also something about why it's politically slightly fraught. Sure, certainly. So renewable portfolio standards are really where this where this movement began, as they referred to. And you know, originally this was all about some some were even called alternative energy standards, uh, looking to uh, looking to technologies just that weren't just your your big traditional power plants, whether they're fossil fuel or nuclear. Uh, and this idea of the renewable resources being an, an economic development opportunity, um, as well as an environmental benefit. Renewable resources are the ones you'd think about, wind and solar, so geothermal, um, but also um, could incorporate things like biomass, which is its own form of, you know, of, of emitting technology. Um, and then over time, a focus shifted to, to sort of clean. Some, you know, th- this became uh, some like kind of like a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't necessarily a square. <laughs> um, so, like some some RPSs uh, are, 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 have been called clean electricity standards. This movement, this rolling from renewable into clean, uh, clean generally refers to when when folks refer to clean electricity standards, and, and indeed, Biden plan has a he actually calls it a carbon free power standard. And those can be synonymous, but everyone's got a little different take on the precise terminology. Clean can also incorporate. And certainly in the, in the in the Inslee plan and in the Evergreen Action Plan that we wrote, we 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 contemplated clean as as, as zero carbon, as as carbon free energy resources, namely speaking, uh, existing nuclear you know, nuclear power uh, and and the importance, frankly, of keeping existing nuclear power online because it's a massive source of carbon free electricity. We're going to continue to need to rely upon, and then um, also to allow for uh, carbon carbon capture on fossil energy plants. Uh, which is not a technology that's deployed at scale, but obviously has uh, uh, opposition from from communities, but um, but nonetheless could become an important technology uh, as part of decarbonizing the power sector. And certainly, as you as you sort of allude to, David has important political constituencies for it, uh, as well as potential importance of deploying that technology around the world, where there are still countries that are unfortunately building coal plants, like we're no longer doing really here in the U.S. But anyways, an emphasis on uh, clean in, in that way. And I think you, you've seen a coalescing around that, that approach to the technologies, be understanding that the climate crisis is, is really urgent uh, and that we need to rely upon uh, and, and pursue all available carbon-free power in, in order to make sure that we can, we can confront this challenge. And especially as, you know, as we started this conversation talking about how we need a whole lot of clean electricity, not just to displace the bad electricity, um, we need it for to power a whole bunch more things. Uh, the picture becomes even clearer when you, you really do need uh, a, a whole techni- technology neutral uh, approach in decarbonizing the power sector. I, and and I definitely, um, you know, it's definitely psychologically <laughs> helpful. I think politically helpful to be able to tell uh, more conservative lawmakers, no, we're being technologic, you know, tech agnostic. Uh, we're not 
prescribing here. You can use whatever low-carbon tech you want. And then what I say to to people on the left who are upset about that is just, um, you know, like what are the chances new nuclear plants and 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 fossil fuel plants with 100% CCS are going to play any meaningful role in decarbonizing any particular state by 2035. It's just, it's to me, to, to me, it, it, you gain a little something, you gain some flexibility by including them, but you're probably not going to lose any renewable development. It's not like, it's not like people are going to flock to nuclear once they're allowed to. That's not what's keeping them away. Certainly. I'd just say purely on economics, even of it, David, right? Even like now in, in many places, uh, soon to be in pretty much every place, the economics speak well to uh, renewables being the most cost-effective resource and storage being the most cost-effective resources to deploy. Um, and also, of course, a massive opportunity for, for job creation and equitable economic investment. Yeah, and I guess it's also worth saying that most of the CESs discussed, I'm pretty sure Biden's, um, say net zero by twenty. 20- 35. Mm-hmm. So, Leah, maybe you can tell us what, what, what the difference is between zero and net zero and, and how significant you think that is. Sure. So, you know, when we are talking about zero emissions, we're saying that the sector can't emit anymore. But when we say net zero, we can open up the door to what we often call offsets, which is saying that a certain amount, if you if you have a little bit extra emissions going on because, uh, you know, you haven't shut down every single natural gas plant. And I will say that some of the modeling actually involves keeping some existing natural gas plants mm-hmm. open to operate very infrequently mm-hmm. during sort of times of the year where wind and solar are not producing enough. Um, you know, if we have a little bit of additional emissions that are still ongoing at that time period as we're sorting this issue out, are there ways that we can reduce emissions elsewhere in the economy and pay for those emissions reductions and kind of uh, cancel it out? Now, offsets in practice, which have been used, for example, in the California cap and trade system, are, are pretty controversial because oftentimes they don't really involve reducing emissions somewhere else. It's really hard to quantify that reduction in emissions somewhere else. And there's always this issue of additionality, meaning, you know, are you sure that you really made those emissions reduce just because you paid for them? Or were we going to reduce them anyway? And now you're in a certain sense double counting. So, uh, you know, there's there's definitely some issues around whether or not offsets should be used at all, but I think that we have to keep our eye on the prize here, which is that right now we're at about 40% clean electricity. And even if we were aiming for 90%, let's say, we have 50% of the way more to go, <laughs> right? There's so much more to do. And and of course, we're not even considering the fact that uh, we'll have to double or maybe even triple the size of the current system. And so we're growing the pie even as we're cleaning it up. Uh, it's going to be a very big challenge and like Sam said that would that could be, you know, maybe around 100 gigawatts a year of clean energy deployment every single year from now out uh, to 2035. So, let's then pivot to what is to me the really interesting bit here, which is and let me just give a little bit of background. It was looking like Joe Biden was not going to have a Democratic Congress, <laughs> that Republicans were going to keep the Senate, in which case 
um, uh, a, a legislative CES would have been off the table entirely. But Democrats won the Georgia seats, so they technically have a majority. However, Joe Manchin and some other more conservative Democratic senators insist that they want to keep the filibuster, that they do not want to get rid of the legislative filibuster, which requires 60 votes for any bill to pass. I think we can all agree here that there is no Democratic climate or energy bill in the universe that is going to attract 10 uh, Republican senatorial votes. So that means you're not going to pass just a straight legislative CES. However, there is this once-a-year opportunity through a process called budget reconciliation where the Senate sits down with the federal budget for the following year and works out any discrepancies and makes sure all the numbers add up. And a budget reconciliation bill only requires a majority. So theoretically, if every Democrat hangs together in the Senate, they can pass a budget reconciliation bill. Budget reconciliation process was originally supposed to be sort of a modest accounting thing, but since it's the only kind of bill that can pass, since no one can get 60 votes for anything, more and more pressure has been put on it. More and more the parties are trying to sort of shove all their priorities into this process, which is not really designed for it. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the situation we're stuck in. So the budget reconciliation process is, is, is defined by some rules of the Senate, um, you know, which the Senate adopts and can change, but at least for now is governed by this rule that basically says the only things that are germane to budget reconciliation are things that affect the budget substantially. And so the only things you can put in reconciliation are things that are budget relevant and things that do not raise the deficit over a 10-year window. These are the so-called bird rules. All of which is just to say budget reconciliation is not amenable to regulatory changes, which is what a normal CES would be. It would just be a regulation. It's not the federal government spending or taking in any more money, really. So on its face is not well suited to budget reconciliation. But given that budget reconciliation may be the only game in town, I know that uh, y'all and other people have been thinking about how to tweak a CES such that it is budget relevant, such that you're sort of creating a, a, a facsimile of a CES that can work in budget reconciliation, that is budget relevant, and et cetera. So tell me, whichever one of you feels like jumping into this, tell me how you make something that looks as straightforwardly regulatory as a CES into a budget-relevant program that could fit into a budget reconciliation bill. So, so I, I can start. The first thing, David, I, I'm, I'm glad you're jumping into that to that crucial question, sort of the, the how do you structure this? But and just a couple of things up front. Number one, the next two years are absolutely critical, and Democrats need to be clear-eyed and bold about this. You know, they've got slim majorities, they, the, the, the slimmest possible majority 
in the Senate and a, and a, and a small one in, in the House. Both, both of which be, we could say could vanish in 2022 very easily. It's even, you might even call it likely. You said it, I didn't, but, <laughs> but the, the potential is there. And they need to be, they need to take advantage of the moment, right? The, the, the moments are rare. We saw it and it was, and it was a blip on the screen in 2009, 2010. Yeah. When you get a moment to, to govern, you got to use it and you got to do the things you got to do. So they got to be clear and bold. And, and that starts with, I mean, we just should just say it. The Senate should, should eliminate the filibuster, right? Kill the filibuster, save the planet. Yes. Um, like that, 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 that we can't gloss over that because that's because it, it shouldn't be there. It's an undemocratic institution and, and it should go. Now, and, and let me just say, let me, cause this is an ax I like to grind it, and I just <laughs> want to be categorical about it so that everybody's super clear. If the filibuster is in place, no major legislation is going to pass. I just, I can't say that enough. Sometimes you hear people like, oh, maybe we can like attract a few Republicans for infrastructure or whatever. It's just, no, you're not getting 10 Republicans for anything. So filibuster means no major legislation. I just got to get that on the record. Right. Voting rights, Leah mentioned DC statehood, right? There's a number of policy reforms that can confront difficulty sometimes (laughs) with, with it. So, so uh, I also want to say that there are a number of other so uh, there are a number of other complementary policies and and really crucially investments mm. that are also crucial to decarbonizing the power sector. We're spending a lot of time talking with the CES, but you know major tax incentives, large scale investments, not just in clean generation but in transmission deployment. Uh, you know you've got a you got a number of other policies that also need to be advanced um, and by the Congress. But you know as you allude to, should should the Senate the filibuster remain in place? We are. are are fully of the opinion that you can pass a clean electricity standard through reconciliation. And then last point about this, and I'll turn over to Leah uh, also, uh, is by the way, <laughs> the Biden administration can't actually, can't wait for that congressional election. They also need to start moving on day one with, with existing authorities, both regulatory uh, uh, financing authorities to get the ball moving and start making progress. Towards yeah, we're going to, because the, we're going to return to that oh, in a moment. Full, full, full speed ahead. So Leah, uh, Okay. Sam says we can pass a CES through budget reconciliation. How? How is it not going to fail the bird, the bird bath, the famous bird bath? <laughs> yes. So, you know, for the past more than six months now, Sam and myself and a few other people have been asking this question. And we've called up uh, like dozens of people, staffers in the Senate, in the House, uh, you know, people working for consulting organizations, NGOs, think tanks. And we've come up with five different ideas, five different approaches to doing a CES through reconciliation. And, you know, we're going to be putting out a report in the coming weeks, which details this all for if people want to read our very long report. Uh, it's very much a Evergreen slash Inslee style report <laughs> since Sam does not know how to write anything short. I'm sure you can relate, David. Yes. Um, I'm hearing this and, and feeling so, it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so the first idea, which I'll pass it over to Sam to really flesh out in detail, is a, what we're calling a kind of on the books, on the government books, clean energy credit system. So what the basic idea is, and I'll let Sam flesh it out, is that you bring the sort of trading mechanism that we talked about, where you're going to be generating clean electricity certificates or zero emission certificates. You bring that into the government. And so you make it have a sort of budget implication. Indeed. So, so it was starting with the assumption that the, that the, the reconciliation rules, and, and I think it's also just important to state a couple of these pieces up, up top as well. Like reconciliation rules are, are they're, they're not black and white. Yeah. There's no firm definition, right? You're like, 
you're guessing at the at the discretion of the parliamentarian. You're you're looking to read their hopes and dreams. Like, <laughs> what is the Rorschach test they're going to be reading that day? And you can rely on like the bird rule as it's been used in the past. You can make your best arguments, but you like you don't know until the Senate parliamentarian says something or says yes or no. That's going to fit in with the bird rule. And again, and, and maybe we should and maybe we should add that it's at least theoretically possible that the Senate parliamentarian says no, and 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 a majority of senators vote to override them and basically just exactly. change the rules Precise. on a case-by-case basis. It's <laughs> There's an open question about whether a bunch of conservative Democratic senators who don't want to do procedural radicalism by killing the filibuster are then going to turn around and do procedural radicalism by, uh, by overruling the Senate parliamentarian over and over again. But at least we should say these rules are not hard and fast. They're decided by the Senate and no. the Senate could change them if, if it really wanted to. Totally. Yes, everything we hear when we've talked to Senate rule experts over the past six months is that uh, the Senate rules are whatever fifty senators say. Yes, the Senate there is rules no spoon, are. and so <laughs> exactly. Right. And one, and actually, one other note about the federal budget scoring and the CBO specifically. My, my colleague at Center for American Progress, Jacob Liebenluf, recently published a paper about how um, CBO really has not historically done a good job, really any job. They've just started to do this of looking at the long-term costs to the federal balance, to the federal budget of accelerating climate change. Oh, right? like yeah. The CBO's got a relative, they, they, they've got a handle on healthcare costs in the economy and how that redounds to government revenues and like outlays. That, that's not been factored in, but like, hey guys, let's none of us pretend that not doing anything on climate change is somehow not going to cost the federal right. government anything. Right, right, right. So it's, it's actually like, that's a, that's, a, that's a key part of this. And frankly, something that, that, can easily be argued is that making meaningful emissions reductions is actually going to save and save not only the government money but indeed the wait, wait a minute Sam I'm, I'm, I'm seeing political I'm seeing political gold here if we can tell them if we can tell senators that climate change is going to increase the deficit just on its own <laughs> maybe we can finally it get some action <laughs> All right. So, what's this with the clean yeah, credits, then, you, Sam? Like, if you've got some, if you've got some bet money. You can take that. You can take that to Vegas, dude. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold on to my savings. But, uh, but so, so this, we've got a few options to talk through here. In, in particular, this one. So, um, uh, uh, an RES or a CES, as we as we historically know them, is basically, you know, it's it's a it's a market system, right? You you set up a market where utility or a load serving entity, um, when they they need to hit a certain percentage of of clean electricity. Uh, and they demonstrate that by generating it, um, or by procuring one of those credits. And that, and that, and that, that credit market traditionally in these policies, as we know them in states, traditionally exists in most of them in sort of a third-party apparatus, right? Where the utility can dem- can generate a, a rec or uh, renewable energy credit by by creating by by generating a megawatt of of megawatt hour of clean electricity, and can and can sell if they may generate enough of them, and they're surpassing their their requirement for the year, they could they can sell those off to other loads of entities who may need some because they're still uh, their portfolio is still too dirty. But these are all financial transactions, right? These are all budgetary mm. transactions, which if which if properly designed and as Elias said, just brought onto the federal government books, they could resemble just a, a financial program, and they could resemble legislation that CBO at least in the past has looked at and said, oh, these this could you know this could be part of the federal government budget. So you you bring it on the federal government books. And you'd establish a program such as at EPA or DOE, uh, where the load serving entities would de- would would still need there, there would be a compliance level they'd had to have to hit every year that would you know would gradually raise itself up to twenty one hundred percent by twenty thirty five or eighty percent by twenty thirty, and they could 
they'd have to hit, they'd have to demonstrate compliance by either, again, generating a megawatt hour of clean electricity or by buying the clean energy credit, this time not from another end, LSE, but from the federal program. Mm. And by, and by, and by, by paying into the federal program, you know, you've got revenue coming in um, and you've got credit going out and you can decide whether or not you want to let the LSEs even trade with other LSEs in the, with, with excess, with, with any excess credits. But it, it just, it takes the market and it brings it inside of the, of the federal government, of the federal government's balance sheet, frankly, and it becomes a budgetary item. And otherwise just works exactly the same way. All you're really doing is taking it out of a third party market and putting the market on government books. It's that simple. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, you can think about how would this be scored, right, in terms of like the budgetary impacts. And there would need to be assumptions about how quickly our utility is going to be generating, how much revenue will be coming into the federal government, because if they don't generate enough power, the federal government raises money. And you can think of this kind of like an alternative compliance payment, which is part of every standard CES bill. Basically, that's a penalty that if you don't make enough clean power, you can pay this price. And that sets a kind of ceiling for how expensive the the program will be. And similarly, this would allow CBO to score the bill by saying like, well, here's how much money we're likely to generate based on how many uh, credits that these load-serving entities or utilities are going to be buying from the federal government. Interesting, but you, but but logically, it seems like it would score deficit neutral over time, since credits incoming and credits outgoing are are supposed to balance. No, if the program is successful and you make enough power right. fast enough, which obviously we want it to be, but especially in the early years, right now, the last estimate I saw for twenty twenty was that we generate we created built 37 gigawatts of new wind and solar, which was actually a banner year uh, for development, including during a pandemic and an economic crisis. But if we're talking about needing to be hitting much higher numbers than that, uh, you know, it's possible that as the... uh, as the industry scales up in the early years, they may not be building enough. And so the CBO will have to make assumptions through a model mm. about how much money could be coming in. But you could imagine that it not necessarily be scored as neutral, that it could be revenue raising. Mm. And indeed, and, and, and the, you know, the credits are going out. Those don't necessarily need to come with outlays. The credits that, that the LSCs are purchasing from the federal government do come with incoming revenue. And the, and the federal government indeed not only can, but, but, can, but, but probably should take those revenues and reinvest those in clean energy deployment in communities. No, so so you know the, the 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 trick with budget reconciliation isn't necessarily that it has to be revenue raising or budget neutral. It can it can be an outlay. It can be an outlay right. in, in 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 total. The trick is is it's got to be of the federal government budget. And and credit markets like this of, of different of a different nature in past legislation have been looked at by CBO and similar market similar market situations have been looked at by CBO and CBO has said this could be considered part of the federal budget. Now that's not dispositive on the parliamentarian necessarily, but we think it's a really important argument that could be made before them. So there's so there's precedent. There's pretty close close precedent in mm-hmm. reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and are there other forms of reconciliation friendly CES that are worth uh, worth well, calling yes. out here? <laughs> what did you think, David? Six months and we only came up with one idea. No, we have four more ideas. Sweet. So. 
but and and I think the point is that you know don't let anybody tell you it can't be done. You know I don't believe that. That's not true. Um, so the second idea is actually from our friends at NRDC, and it's an emissions intensity based standard. And maybe Sam can walk us through that one. Yeah, I mean basically you can you can take a uh, a load serving entity's uh, uh, power generation mix. I mean, take a take a look at the emissions intensity of that portfolio. Um, and, and look at where it stands now and draw a line at 2035 uh, and, and, and draw that line so that, so that, that basically their, that's their trajectory. That's that what they've got to do uh, to get to 100% uh, clean power uh, and then uh, basically require them year over year to stay below that emissions intensity threshold. Uh, whereas uh, if, they, if they go over that threshold, they, get, they have to pay a fine. They basically get, they get charged a fee. Uh, which is, of course, this is similarly, it's a financial mechanism. Okay? Utility complies, <laughs> it just continues on its way. If it, if it, um, if it steps out of line, uh, if, it, if, it, if, it mediates, if it deviates from that trajectory, it's got to pay a fee into the federal government. You could potentially also further incentivize utilities to stay under that line, to continue to make progress towards clean by actually paying the dollars to them, should they, you know, giving them a, a bonus payment should they should they continue to reduce their emissions intensity, but um, and that in that way would probably become more a revenue neutral uh, program, but it would function more like a fee bait if you were to do so. Yeah, or right? like um, the uh, home runner program in Japan, right? You just take the money away from the losers and give it to the winners. And, right. and incentivize it that way. <laughs> but this is like, I don't know, this walks and talks like a regulation. I don't know. I'm no Senate parliamentarian, but like at this point, <laughs> yeah, you could just make anything, you could just make anything a budget relevant just by like making well, your regula- regulatory apparatus enforced by fees. Well, that, I mean, true. But if you think about it, I mean, what is, what is taxation policy, right? It, it's a policy where you're, where you're, um, uh, you're, you're deriving revenue by requiring something yeah. from someone of an economic actor, right? It's, it's the same thing. I mean, progressive taxation mm-hmm. uh, regimes would certainly be, would be certainly be revenue, uh, would certainly be reconciliation friendly. And, but they also achieve other policy. Outcomes, right. right. Does ju- it's just a matter of, are they, or are they not part of a, basically do they deal with primarily, not merely incidentally, but primarily federal revenues outlays or the budget? And then the answer would clearly be yes. Yeah, I mean, think about it. If you had a tax program, you would say, if you make $100,000 or less, your tax rate is this. And this is pretty similar. It's like, if you have an emissions right. intensity of this, then your penalty is that. It's it's actually pretty similar to like how taxation policy It's like a works. tax bracket, but an emissions bracket. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> emissions tax. And I got to say, this one does smell a little bit like a carbon price in some ways, but it's very much focused on the outcome, which right. is within this sector. This is the standard that we have to hit. And this and is so by, we have a pretty clear this outcome. Is utility by utility, not state by state. Yes, uh, mo- I think most of our, well, actually, our, the next one we're going to talk to is more state-based. But the first two ideas are are targeting utilities. Those are like the load-serving entities. And we spent a lot of time when we were talking to people about who should be the regulated mm-hmm. entity, should it be states or utilities. And in general, it makes more sense for, for a lot of these ideas for the utilities or what we would call the load-serving entity to be the compliance uh, entity mm-hmm. for the law. All right. Uh, so what's number three? All right, I'll, I'll do the I'll do the next three relatively quickly because you know we can't just bore everybody with all our <laughs> ideas. Um, so the next one is the idea that 
the federal government through the budget gives block grants to states, mm-hmm. right? They give money to states all the time. And what if we made those conditional? Right. This has been done, for example, with um, Medicaid expansion, right? And highway Where, money too, right? Um, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So this is done somewhat regularly. And it would basically say that if you want to get this money, states, you have to pass a clean electricity standard that is in line with, let's say, 100 percent clean by 2035. Um, Now, right now, there are how many states, Sam? Seven? Are we at seven states? Uh, with, With this law in the books, I mean, eight states in D.C. and Puerto Rico. Okay, see, it's always a moving number. It's hard to keep track. We have eight states, plus D.C. and Puerto Rico, that already have 100% goals. That includes places like New York and California. The most recent state is Arizona. Now, these states could move their targets up, right? And actually, there are conversations happening right now in, for example, California, about moving that target Mm. up. Um, So, you know... Could states do this? I think yes. Now, there are two, we have two more ideas. Uh, we could have a tax based uh, clean electricity standard, which would basically be using the tax code. It's a little bit similar to the second mm-hmm. idea, this emissions intensity based standard, but it's more direct where you just say, you know, if you have this much, we will reward you for doing this much clean stuff and we will punish you. And we already do a fair amount of our renewable energy work through the tax code, through things like the investment tax credit and the production tax credit. And then finally, and this idea is maybe a little more off the wall, um, but to pivot as we are going, I'm sure, in this conversation towards existing authority, mm-hmm. we already have, through the Clean Air Act, the ability to basically do a clean electricity standard. This is what the Clean Power Plan, in some sense, was trying to do. And so one option is you could put aside a bunch of funding to the EPA and set in a budget mm-hmm. bill and say that that will go under existing authority to help implement the Clean Air Act that already exists, mm. right? And you could you could have some small language around that that says, you know, to target 100% clean electricity by 2035, here's, you know, a billion dollars for the EPA to do that. So, and then the EPA could, through its existing authority, right. set up the kind of trading mechanism that we've already talked about in the first option. Um, so I think that the, the point here throughout all these five ideas, uh, which we came up with, like I said, by talking to all kinds of people who uh, work in the Senate and the House uh, who, or who have in the past or work for research organizations, is that this is doable. And people who don't let anybody tell you otherwise, because the you know our Congress is capable of doing big things, even through budget reconciliation. And so... Uh, uh, we should do this. I, I kind of like number three. It's like, oh, we can't pass a regulation. Fine. We'll just bribe all the states to pass a regulation. <laughs> Um, Yeah, I mean, number three works because a lot of states have already been doing this, right? It's not like we literally have 80% of our states that have passed a renewable portfolio standard. And now we've got uh, eight out of 50 plus D.C. and Puerto Rico that have a 100% standard, plus a lot of cities, too. Did you know that one more than one in three Americans already live in a place that's targeting 100% clean electricity? So, you know, this is happening in a lot of places already. Indeed, and you wouldn't even necessarily need to make it a a 100% clean state law. I wouldn't, you know, most states have done it through legislation. Arizona most recently did it through an act of the, of the utility commission, but you could, you could, the state could merely, could merely require utilities in their, in their IRP right. um, to, 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 to submit that they're going to get to hundred percent clean. There's a number of ways of, of that they could demonstrate compliance or to demonstrate that their utilities are going to comply with that, with that requirement. But, um, 
So yeah. before we leave these five behind, then is there a a, a, a top? choice is there one that people are gravitating towards that that uh, sort of the stakeholders you talk to would prefer or that legislators would prefer I mean I think that uh we are agnostic Sam and I about this what, what we see ourselves are, are as midwives <laughs> to the the flowering of this my metaphors are getting very mixed uh of a lot of ideas in Congress. You know, there have, of course, been fantastic CES bills like uh, Senator Smith and uh, former representative, I guess now Senator Lujan. They came up with a really great idea. That one would probably not work in a reconciliation context. But, you know, I guess we're we're hoping that more committees, particularly on the Senate side, will take up this idea and start to develop them. And we just want to get this idea out there to sort of let a thousand flowers bloom. There you go. My metaphors are fully mixed now. It came full circle, right. Um, <laughs> and and I, would, I would also just say, you know, to totally agree with Leah's point, we're, we're trying to um, explore ideas and, and partner with others in doing so and, and demonstrate this is doable as we, as we 100% feel it is. But also we've been really thrilled by the, the level of dialogue we've been able to have with as many offices as we've been able to have, as well as partners. Um, I think there's there's genuine interest in in um, in in pursuing ambitious electricity, ambitious CES policy specifically. Um, uh, that's also can fit within can fit within uh, whatever confines you want to call the burglar. Yeah, what's your read on? You know, cap and trade got pretty comprehensively slimed, I think, and is now sort of like. Uh, uh, viewed with horror by a lot, by a lot of legislators, and there there, it's a weird. The clean energy climate space is a little bit weird in that there are like some pieces of it that have gotten polarized, and some pieces of it that haven't, and it's in this weird flux. So I'm sort of curious: Do you find uh, legislators outside the sort of ones you would predict, you know, the the lefty ones? Do you find them more amenable? to a clean electricity standard than, than sort of like other climate policies that are floating around? Sort of like, what's the partisan valence as you've talked to people? Well, I mean, the, I, I would say this is, a, it's got to be, you know, there are, there are legislators who, you know, quite commendably on Capitol Hill, like every tool you can find, bring to us and let's, let's look at all of them. And I think that's, that's well taken. I mean, David, the, you, you and I talked about this at, at length, um, back in the springtime, there, there has been a movement wide. The, the movement broadly, I think, has really moved towards this, this idea of standards, investments, and, and a discommitment to justice in these policies that I think together formulate a full way of driving this thing forward. You're, I think you're right in that sort of economy-wide carbon pricing has, has fallen out of favor um, as the sort of, and, and should, frankly, when people try to view it as the primary way in which we're going to drive emission throughout the economy, it can be a helpful tool in driving insulator emissions reductions, marginal reductions, uh, and as well, frankly, a, a source of accountability and revenue uh, raising for the federal government, the accountability for fossil fuel companies. I, I would say um, uh, further uh, that uh, that you know, the, the the key the, the key pieces that's where the that's where the movement's kind of drive, driven to. You, you asked what sort of partisan valence as well, and I think this is this is a cone that we, we're contemplating as we talked about at the very beginning. You know, pretty purely now is a democratic agenda for a democratic house and a democratic senate and a new democratic White House that, of course, took office with this. And I'll just want to say because we're spending we're spending this time talking about the the standards in SIJ, but the investments, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, President-elect Biden campaigned on two trillion dollar investment in clean energy and infrastructure. 
in his Build Back Better plan. And, and guess what? A lot of those investments can make a real meaningful down payment on, on themselves meaningful emissions reduction, right? More investment in, in clean energy deployment is going to displace more fossil fuel generation, which is going to drive us toward that, that 2030 timeline. Uh, indeed, more investment in transit, more investment in electric vehicle manufacturing. Uh, and then indeed, uh, as well, on, on justice, you know, the, the, the pretty pivotal commitment to guaranteeing 40% of investment benefits for disadvantaged communities, communities of color, low-income communities who've suffered the cumulative impacts of pollution and, and economic disinvestment. So I, I think there's there's a lot to work with here. It's a full agenda. This is a this is a pretty crucial piece of it, though. Yeah, as you can tell from our dedication. Um, the the final the final thing I wanted to cover uh, in a CES terms is in a world where Biden hadn't gotten the Senate <laughs> or didn't have the votes for budget reconciliation and was confined purely to executive action. There's been some debate. I feel like, and it's pretty contentious about whether EPA can, through the Clean Air Act, do something like a CES, which targets 100% by 2035, which is substantially more ambitious than Obama's clean power plan, which, as you may mm-hmm. recall, freaked everyone the hell out and got sued <laughs> 412 times and got and got destroyed. So, so I, I guess two questions. One, how how clear is it that EPA has the statutory authority to do something this ambitious? And and B, do you think Biden should pursue that, even if budget reconciliation is going forward, even at risk of sort of a similar partisan mm-hmm. backlash? So, like, where does EPA fall in all this with with you? Well. I'll say that we both agree that we should not wait for Congress. And I don't think that the Biden administration itself thinks that they should wait. I think that they have a plan to start immediately. And of course, Trump rolled back so many key environmental regulations that affect the power sector. If you think about things like particulate matter rules or the mercury air toxic standards or ozone rules, right? If we can strengthen those regulations, which already exist, then some of the dirtiest coal plants will need to close. And there are, of course, efforts to also slow down the building of new fossil fuel infrastructure. And there are authorities under the Clean Air Act in Section 111B to go after those new sources. So I think that there's so much that can be done. And I'm sure that people like Gina McCarthy know this and are thinking about it and will hopefully do it. Um, and, and and the last thing that Sam always likes to talk about is that there's also money, right? Mm. There's existing money. There's new money that just is hopefully going to come based on the bill in December. Um, And those are things like the loan guarantee program, but also the rural utility service that could be used to help get rid of coal plant debt for rural electric co-ops, for example. There's so much that can be done uh, with existing spending that the federal government is going to do no matter what. I know one thing that you always like to talk about, David, is um, which isn't exactly electricity, but is relevant, is the postal service Mm -hmm. and electrifying the postal service (laughs) fleet, right? So, exactly. So, think about all the ways we spend money day in and day out through the federal government. And all of that can be greened and cleaned and turned into uh, climate action. And I think that that is the approach that the Biden administration is going to take. Indeed. And, and David, just one other thing on that front. You know, earlier, you asked me about um, looking back a decade and you know, what might have viewed them differently, which is, of course, now going to 
hang out in my head for the rest of the night. So <laughs> Sorry to haunt you, um, haunt you yet again. Uh, 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 but uh, but one but one thing I one thing that's uh, I think a very clear lesson from that is like you don't you 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 can't light the legislative fire uh, and then light the executive one later. You you got to kind of go forward at all speeds. And 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 I'm thrilled by first of all people Biden's installing to lead his climate agenda, but also the, their very clear commitment that this is going to be an all of government agenda, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just, it, it, which means, of course, leaning into these existing authorities and existing financing authorities and, and, and using regulation to drive uh, transformation, and not just at the EPA, but also really crucially at the EPA, but really across the federal government. And so, I, and they've got to go, you know, this is a all hands on deck effort and it's got to be both simultaneously. You got to go everything you can do with existing authorities and you've got to also now and frankly, you actually have the opportunity to also be the uh, an ambitious path uh, in, the, in the legislative front as well. All right. Well, you guys are trying to make this interesting for ordinary people, but this is my podcast, so I'm going to drag <laughs> us back to a very specific and wonky point <laughs> that I want that I want someone smarter than me to 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 clarify for me. So, when Obama passed his clean power plan for the electricity sector. It was sort of aimed at states at their total, uh, sort of their in total electricity, you know, system was sort of what got measured, and that gave states flexibility to, you know, we can we can put pollution controls on the coal plant, or we could just build some more solar. There's a lot of different ways you can get the net uh, emissions from your electricity sector down, other than doing things to specific power plants. But part of the, uh, the the premise of the lawsuits against the clean power plan, and it, it, sort of the central premise of the central lawsuit against the clean power plan, is that it is um, beyond EPA's statutory authority to go what's called outside the fence line. In other words, to regulate in such a way as you're forcing states to do things other than fiddle with power plants. <laughs> they, they say the EPA's <clears throat> authority under the Clean Air Act is is restricted to inside the fence line. You can make you can make people do things to specific power plants, but you cannot do these statewide flexible programs. And that and that lawsuit was bumbling forward, has been bumbling forward forever, and is still bumbling forward. And now, presumably will get dropped. I'm assuming the Biden administration will drop it, but that means that we're not going to get a ruling on it. <laughs> and, and and so my question is, if a new EPA comes at this again, are they going to once again attempt to do something beyond the fence line and will it once again get sued? And then will we finally get a ruling on that? And if so, what will the ruling be? Mm-hmm. Oh, you didn't just want us to be smart. You wanted us to have yes. crystal balls and see the future. Yes, okay, got it. Well, well look, I, I think there's there's a lot of lessons that have been learned in that process. And the Clean Power Plan itself, while it just ran into a ton of legal opposition and the Anthony Kennedy stay, for which Ugh, he should really yes. never be forgiven. Um, uh, and, and then, the, of course, the Trump replacement rule. Um, I think there's a lot of lessons to learn since that time. Also, the interesting thing is the actual effect that the rule had, even without going into implementation, yeah. right? You forced utilities to change practices. Mm-hmm. You forced state mm-hmm. regulators, PUC commissioners, DQs to do things differently. And that's frankly helped catalyze us to where we've gotten where states and utilities are now moving towards 100% clean electricity. Um, that, that would not have maybe happened the same way, but for that. Um, uh, uh, so I'd, I'd say that. But, but specific to your, to your legal question, I'm, I'm, I'm not an attorney. 
uh, uh, but I, but I would say there are things that can be done using Section 111D of the law, which is, of course, the section used for the Clean Power Plan and for existing sources, but also for Section 111B that go after greenhouse gas pollution and, and can do so meaningfully. Uh, and that can, that both legal lessons have been learned and even technologies have been, have, have been changing over the course of the last decade where you can use the statute and the clear authority the Supreme Court gave the EPA once it, it handed down its massive mm-hmm. EPA decision and the EPA sub- subsequently uh, issued its endangerment finding. Uh, there is clear, uh, clear power authority, and you can clearly use those statutes to drive at both um, new so- stopping new sources of greenhouse gas pollution from power plants and getting at making meaningful carbon pollution reductions from existing sources. Leah, do you want to take a guess at, at how uh, a federal court would rule if this came up? <laughs> no, but I want to talk about what uh, one other nerdy topic since you said we were getting too mainstream. Fine if you must. Are really people. Okay, well, many people may not know this, but as part of the omnibus bill that passed in December, which included all kinds of energy and climate provisions, there was a new directive for... FERC, mm-hmm. right, our federal energy regulator, to set up an Office of Public Participation, mm-hmm. which is something that they should have done under PURPA, passed all the way back in 1978. And the really interesting thing about an Office of Public Participation is that it could include an intervener compensation program, which, again, I think is a very complementary policy that could go along with all these other efforts to keep clean up the, clean, uh, the electricity system. Basically, an intervener compensation program, which exists in California, for example, and a few other states, pays non-utility advocates. These are like people intervening on Mm, behalf of ratepayers or behalf of the environment, you know, in the public interest. It pays them to show up and intervene in cases and in regulatory proceedings at FERC uh, for their time. And that's really important because keep in mind that utilities, uh, they can recover their costs of having to go to FERC yes, or any other regulatory bodies. they can lobby against bodies. things their ratepayers love and then charge their ratepayers for the privilege. Yes, they do that all the time, unfortunately. And so then an intervener compensation program, which has long been promised and never delivered upon, would finally start to even the playing field a little bit by allowing public advocates, environmental advocates to have resources to go and intervene. And I think that that is a really critical piece of the puzzle when it comes to cleaning up our electricity system faster, because we've got to uh, undermine utilities monopoly, Mm. not just their economic monopoly, but their monopoly over over our policymaking system, and that includes uh, regulators. And I would love to have one at every public utility commission across the country, (laughs) but I will start with FERC. That would just be fantastic. So I think that that has got to be a really big priority to make sure that that is implemented finally this year. I just want to say I I so admire the commitment. A little before we started, David, Leah and I were talking, and Leah said, you know, I'm going to make sure to mention the interview. <laughs> and I said, Leah, I never doubted it for an instant. <laughs> this is my passion project. Okay? No, it's a beautiful thing. It's one of these little things that it's like not super sexy headline policy, but can change, but can change <laughs> things quite a bit behind the scenes. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to match the kind of money that utilities are able to pay their lobbyists and, and representatives. Yeah, exactly. And there was an independent audit of the California system a few years ago. And literally, 
there were there was 14 times as much value delivered to ratepayers in terms of lowered costs oh, wow. than the system cost itself. It's a 14 times return on investment, so to speak. And I mean, that's just stunning in terms of effectiveness. And of course, that 14 times you know, number doesn't even include all the benefits when it comes to like air pollution or climate change or anything yeah. else. So this is like a no-brainer. Uh, on the one hand, it seems good, but then it also makes you think like, what the hell was going on at these places before a public advocate showed up <laughs> such that one one person showing up can 14x uh, customer savings? Kind of makes you wonder what those meetings were like before. It was utilities, my friend. <laughs> utilities and their their best friends, the regulator. That's how. Okay, it was. so uh, we're we're uh, over time already. So I'm going to ask one final question, which is to to, to both of you. So uh, you're sort of renewable or clean energy skeptics. I think we'll have a couple of worries about the CES. Uh, I, I can think of two sort of families of worries about the CES. One is. By forcing utilities to jam more and more renewable energy on the grid, you're going to destabilize the grid, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to, you're going to cause blackouts. You're going to basically, you're going to push utilities to go faster than they would go if they were doing their normal utility. Let's be very, very safe and secure at every step kind of process. And so, um, what sort of mm-hmm. this is a dual question this is the first part what sort of what sort of complementary policies could uh sort of allay those worries sort of make sure that the electric electricity system overall remains stable and reliable and et cetera, even as all this uh um new clean energy is flooding onto it so that's kind of one worry about your ces the other one is from i think environmental Justice people, which is one of the one of the great things about doing this through legislation, um, is you can have a comprehensive plan and you can include uh, justice, you, you know, in it. And that's a little mm-hmm. bit harder to do in the confines of budget re- reconciliation. But I'm sort of wondering also: Are there environmental justice concerns, especially around maybe the trading system? Uh, uh, or maybe mm-hmm. around um, the CCS parts or any of those other parts, are there complementary policies that can sort of address those concerns? And sort of like what bells and whistles do we need to pass alongside the CES to make sure it works well and fairly? Yeah, so I'm happy to take a first crack at this and then Sam can pick up all my mistakes. Um, so first of all, that is a tale as old as time. Oh, yeah. This idea that, oh, we're going to get more renewables and the grid will get destabilized. <laughs> and it happened in Germany, right? People say it in the United States and all these different states. And it doesn't seem to happen. I'll tell you what does destabilize the grid since I live in California. Wildfires caused by climate change. Very bad for the grid, it turns out, right? All these public safety power shutoff policies, which is literally when you turn off the grid to avoid sparking a wildfire, that is really undermining our grid stability. <laughs> so I think the reality is that we can get to much higher penetrations of renewables. And it's what all the modeling shows, whether that's the new Princeton study or the Goldman study that I talked about from UC Berkeley. There's so much modeling that suggests we can get to much higher penetrations, like 80 to 90%, and not only keep the grid stable, but save customers money. In terms of a complementary policy, I think that a really exciting initiative that the Biden administration is no doubt already dreaming up would be a battery shot initiative, right? Like the Mm. sunshot initiative. 
which is to help bring down the cost of grid-scale battery storage so that we can deal with the intermittency that will increase as we get higher and higher penetrations of wind and solar. Is there nothing like that? In terms of... Going on yet? Uh, batteries are better. Have you met Donald J. Trump? <laughs> I mean, Have you met but, Donald J. Trump? Batteries are so sexy. Are there not people tunneling away in ARPA E, uh, you know, sort of out, of, out outside of the eye of Sauron, just kind of doing their little thing? <laughs> yes, I'm sure ARPA E is doing fantastic stuff on this. Um, I'm, I'm really sure of that. But I think the nice, the reason why I brought up Sunshot is because they said, here's the target about how much we want to get costs down in terms of dollars per watt. And I think that the same thing could be done for batteries and and very successfully. And of course, battery costs are coming down all the time because of other things like electric vehicles and other applications for batteries um, and just innovation. On the EJ stuff, this is again something that we did a bunch of work on for the report, talked to a lot of EJ groups. One of the reasons why we, we talked about regional trading is that it's important to make sure that benefits are staying within mm. a region, right? So that you're not just, for example, taking a lot of hydropower from the Pacific right. Northwest and keeping dirty coal plants open. We really want to make sure that there's progress made everywhere in the country. Um, and another thing that we have dreamed up, if, for example, we were able to get a clean electricity standard without reconciliation is carve-outs. That, you know, you can actually say that a certain percent of the target has to be met um, by projects that happen in disadvantaged communities Mm -hmm. or by community-scale projects, right? Carve-outs are really commonly used in renewable portfolio standards for technologies. You say, like, a certain percent needs to be solar. But you could also think about using carve-outs for other goals, like equity, uh, regional targeting, uh, targeting towards previous fossil fuel areas, that kind of thing. About so that is something that we've come up those with. into a budget reconciliation form like have you tried to kind of replicate those in these new in these new reconciliation versions yeah it's possible that you could do that i mean when if when the authority gets delegated to either the epa or the doe to implement this program um, you know, it's possible that they could invent right. these sorts of things that might get challenged. But I think what Sam pointed out earlier with the clean power plant example is it's kind of uh, anticipate regulatory anticipation is what I like to call it, which is utilities are compliance entities. They like to meet the right. rules. They don't like to pay the penalties. And so if you say this is what we're doing, even if they sue you and they get it tied up in court, they start doing the thing anyway. So I think you could, for example, get um, an agency to try to set up some of the requirements to be, you know, for a disadvantaged community. And I think we'll think about that more, David, now that you've you've brought it up. <laughs> in, indeed. And, and, and David, I, I just, I think it's a good, these are both good questions. And I think the, the main thing I'd want to say in, in response is around just the comp- the suite of policies that we're going to need to, to, to adequately decarbonize the power sector and continue to grow this clean energy economy. Just do they go well beyond uh, a CES as well, right? They, we've talked about intervener compensation. We've talked about mm-hmm. technology innovation and even some of the stuff just passed in the year-end Energy Act. And we've, we've even talked a little bit about uh, deployment incentives and, and clean energy technology incentives, both existing ones uh, and new ones, like for storage. Um, but there's a bunch more. Right? There's discussion of um, a, a national clean energy accelerator or a green bank financial mm-hmm. institution to deploy greater financing. Which you could definitely do through reconciliation. Well, right. There's an emphasis on good union jobs. Could you could you create an expanded tax incentive for projects that meet high road labor standards, mm. like like Senator Jeff Merkley has proposed in a bill 
in, uh, in the Senate that actually in, in Washington, policy in Washington State. Yeah, Washington's Washington doing State. that, right? And it's, and it's, and it's working. <laughs> Precisely. There's, there's, the, there's the need to fulfill that, you know, the 40% uh, vision of, of, of ensuring these investments are going to the communities that have been left behind with these investments in the past. There's, there's the importance of fossil fuel transition and, and support for the communities where fossil fuel plants are, of course, already closing. Mm. Coal's already, coal plants are already shutting down, but, you know, debt securitization uh, and ensuring that those, those communities and those workers are taken care of. And then, you know, we, we talked a little bit about promoting competitive, uh, we, pro- we talked a little bit about promoting competition in regional electricity markets, um, but, but your question alludes to this, the, the importance of transmission. Right, it's kind of mm. doesn't get as much attention as a sexy transmission and distribution, <sighs> cross-state siting and permitting, um, a transmission investment tax credit like that proposed by Senator Martin Heinrich from Mexico. You, you know, utilizing existing power marketing authorities that, you know, like we've talked about in the past, um, which is a thing you can do with existing authorities there using um, using those DOE programs in a, in a more ambitious way and on a regional basis. So there's a whole lot to do. Is basically what I want to say in addition to uh, the CES policy. Um, and it's going to need to be, you know, all hands on deck and getting as much done as we can as fast as fast as possible. There's a lot to do, and let's go do it. All right, you guys. Well, uh, I, as you know, I could walk out on this stuff all day long, but I'm a constant. Yes, the length of this episode is very on brand for your <laughs> and here, writing here I am style, thinking, David. Yeah. Oh, we just got started. There's so much more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll, we're going to be slowly testing the patience of uh, Volt's podcast listeners. We're going to find out the outer the outer bound. Uh, thank you guys so much for uh, uh, appearing here on my on my uh, inaugural podcast. I couldn't ask for two better uh, guests to kick it off. A true honor. I'm going to have to put a new line item yeah, on my Yeah, this goes CD in the Twitter bio, I think. Inaugural, <laughs> totally. inaugural interviewee on Volt's totally, podcast. Totally, David. This was a pleasure. All right. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>